0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and that darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, O star of Star of light, star of royal beauty bright, lived and led, full of grace and truth, bringing sight in the night, making children of light, to shine like stars in the dark, revealing the way to the way. Out of his fullness, we believed and received grace in place of grace, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, and we cry, holy, 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 for the true light that gives life has come into the world. Good to have you here, thanks for being here here in, and as in Bellingham and in Skagit at our campus there, as well as those at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton watching online. As we enter into to the second week of our Light in Life series this December, I mentioned last weekend that this is gonna be a year where we're gonna have Christmas for grown-ups, but not to spoil any surprises or anything for children. What I meant by that is that I want us to collectively stretch our minds and go deeper in our faith and enhance our worship primarily by looking at a passage of scripture that is not always the go-to scripture at Christmas out of John chapter one, verses one through 18. And I threw out a challenge to you last week that over these three weeks leading up to Christmas that you would be reading John one, one through 18, that little passage every single day. I wanna give you another, maybe a tool or a help in this because after you've read this through several times you might be going, okay, yeah, I've read this, I've got that. One of the things that I've been doing this last week that you might want to do is uh, in this coming week, continue to read these 18 verses each day, but read them in a different version or a different translation of the Bible each day. Maybe you'll do the New International Version one day, the New Living Translation one day, Holman one day, maybe you'll go old school, King James, maybe you'll do the Message one day, and just every day uh, to read it in a different translation or version. Now some of you are saying, Pastor Bob, I'm not a pastor, I don't have all those Bibles on my shelf like you do. No, maybe you don't, but you probably have a phone or a computer. If you have a phone and you have a Bible app on there, all of those translations and more are listed. If you don't have a Bible app on your phone, if you have access to a computer, if you will just Google John 1, 1 through 18, there will be a lot of different things that come up. Biblia will come up, uh, Bible Gateway will come up, Bible Hub will come up, Bible.com. All of these have multiple translations and versions that you can read that on. And that way you can just kind of see it and it's ultimately... the the same scripture, but there might be just the way it's phrased or a word that's a little bit different that gives you kind of a new insight. So I want to encourage you with that, and we're going to continue on in our study and uh, our journey digging into this deep, profound passage. Last weekend after our Saturday night service, uh, Christopher Jones came up to me and said, wow, Bob, your word count was really up tonight. And I said, okay. Okay. And then that was confirmed because last week, after the 11 o'clock service, Miles Leibolt, who's seven years old, was in big church with his dad, and after the service, he said to me, you talked really fast today. And uh, I just want to let you know, I've had my agent go to the elders, and we have renegotiated my contract. I'm being paid by the word. That's why, uh, and a bonus if I can keep it under 40 minutes. So I have to talk really, really fast. Uh, But the issue last week is this, that this passage of Scripture is so deep, so profound, there's so much to it, there's so many different layers, and it's like this beautiful diamond that every time you turn it, there's a new facet that comes into great beauty and color, and we will see that today with different facets and different layers in this passage. I think John himself, struggled when he was up against this monumental task that he would have to take this truth about the logos, the word about Jesus, and this concept of who he is and who he was and what he did and what he does that goes so far beyond words that he himself was struggling. Last week, we basically got through about three and a half verses in this passage. Today, my goal is to take us through 10 verses at a pace that you can understand Fortunately, some of this, maybe we won't go as deep into some of the words and some of the verses as we did last week, but that's our goal today. We started off looking at this incredible passage where John pins these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And he just paints this picture of this pre-existent Christ, this Jesus who is eternal and infinite. And he's one with the Father and he is God. And he is the creator of all things. And then in verse 4, he says this, in him was life. That Jesus is the source of life. He's, he is the, the uh, creator of all life. Now, what's interesting in John's gospel, the word in the theme life is a very important one. In fact, he uses the word life 35 times in his gospel, and some of the most famous words that Jesus said about life are found in John's gospel. John 3.16, so, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And there is that word again, John 10.10, 10. Jesus said, the thief and the enemy, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more fully. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You do not know how much self-control and restraint I just used for not saying those words a lot faster than I wanted to. I'm trying to slow things down. Our words per minute count is going to drop a little bit today. I'm trying to go slow. So this concept of life we see throughout, and it says, in him was life. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, from him was life. You say, well, that's just uh, your semantics. No, no, no. Big difference. If it was just from him, it's just, just something that he gives. This, it could be even this nebulous life force that's out there. But it says, in him. And when you begin to understand the life that he's talking about, that life isn't just a present from Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus within us. When you begin to understand this word life, it's not just the biological life that we have. That that thing that separates animate from inanimate objects. While that is all from from Christ as well, it's it's amazing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's true that he is our creator of our lives. He's the sustainer of our lives. That in him we live and move and have our being. That every blink of our eye, every beat of our heart, every uh, breath that our lungs draw in is a gift from the creator. That's all true. But that's just the biological piece of life, which in and of itself is fabulous. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, mysterious, this biological life. But there's something more. In First John, chapter five, we read these words. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We say, well, we know some people that don't have Jesus, but they're alive. Exactly the point. They have their biological life from the Creator. But there's a life here that's deeper. It's a deeper, more meaningful, purposeful, significant life that we were created to live. It is a life that is drenched with Jesus. It's the life that deep inside all of us truly long to have because we were created to live that way. And that's the life he's talking about here. So we look at this passage, we look at all of it and it says, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was uh, with God and the word was God and uh, through him, uh, you know, all things were created, nothing that was uh, created, uh, you know, was made has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. He connects this life with the light of men. Interesting how he connects that. Now some of your translations will use the word um, all mankind here or everybody, or people, and that's a better translation, and what you begin to see is what we talked about last week, is that John doesn't just narrow into this little gathering of Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, and a few wise men, Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, and a few shepherds. He zooms out, and he says, "This this is the global view that this birth of Christ was for everybody, that it's not about your nationality, it's not about your race, it's not about your gender, it's not about your social economic class or your maturity or your your age. It's not, this is for all the people. And he says, this light and this life that comes from Christ. Now when you look at these first verses, you see some repeated themes and there's one word that's repeated a lot. I don't know if you picked this up. Look at this. The word was. Was. And we talked about this word last week. Not only is it the past tense of to be, but you remember when my utter astonishment when I found out that this was a, that one word that I can't remember right now, durative imperfect, were you not here last week? That was such a profound moment, this durative imperfect, that, that this is a continuation of something that God has already been doing. This is what he has been doing, it's what he is doing. And all the way through, it just shows this origin of who Jesus is and who he's always been, what he has done, what he has always done. It's this ongoing thing. Something very interesting happens at this point. Up to this point, all this about who Jesus is, about what he's done, it's his origin. And then things change when it says, and the light shines in the darkness. The first time he uses a present tense verb. Now, it's not just about the origin of things, of what happened It's what is our reality right now, that the light shines, present tense, in the darkness, in our dark world, in our dark lives, in the darkness of doubt and uncertainty. There's a light that brings truth. There's a light that guides us. There's a light of wisdom, and it's found in Jesus. In the darkness of our distress and the chaos of our life, there's the light of the Prince of Peace, the light of Jesus, this Lagos who came. In the midst of all of our darkness of despair and discouragement and all of these things, there's a light of hope that Jesus is with us, not only with us, but that there's a confidence in the future. Even in the darkness of death that overshadows all of us, there's this life and the light of life that comes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. It's not just a present from Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus with me. And what I love about this is that it says the light shines in the darkness. That while we may have doubts and uncertainty in life, even in the midst of the darkness of those seasons, Jesus walks with us with his truth. And while there still is despair, and and while there still is this chaos, that even in the difficulties and the darkness of life, in those seasons of life, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He continues to walk with us, giving us his hope giving us his confidence, giving us his peace. And even in that day, when the cold dew of of death is on our brow, Jesus walks with us with eternal life. In him is life, and that life is the light of man, and that light shines in the darkness. Jesus would say these words recorded in John chapter uh, 12, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You're not on your own. You're not in this dark cave by yourself. We have the light and the life of Jesus to walk with us, even in the most difficult of days. So he says, the light shines in the darkness. And then it says, and the darkness has not understood it. And some of you said, I don't understand that. In fact I had someone last week say we're out of town next week but we're going to tune in because I don't get that verse and I hope you're going to talk about it so let's talk about it. this is amazing this is one of those times where you see this verse has these multifaceted every time you turn it you see a different picture of it the, the Greek language is so full that sometimes our English language doesn't do justice to it some of your translations may have other words but this is a multifaceted word that can mean several things the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. One way to look at that is just straightforward understanding, like comprehend. Like the darkness has not comprehended. The darkness just doesn't get it, just doesn't understand. For some of you, this is the life verse you had all the way through school. You just didn't get it. We all have different uh, capacities and propensities in areas where we do better. Some of you are not numbers people. Math just was not your thing. Can I get an Amen. Yeah, all you idiots. Okay, so some of you, math just wasn't your thing. And it didn't matter how good the teacher was. It didn't matter how they taught it. It didn't matter how many tutors you had. You just didn't get the numbers thing. It just did not work for you. Did not compute. Doesn't happen. Changed your entire career. You've had to find a career that did not need math. As soon as you were done with the requirements, you never took another math class ever. That was it. You just didn't get it. Now, some of you are not that way at all. Some of you are good with numbers. But artistically, you just don't get it. I mean, you come in here and try and sing every Sunday morning. We know. You're making the joyful noise, and God's happy with it. But man, it's painful for the rest of us. You can't clap. You know, you're like a prison singer. Hum a few bars and look for the key, and you never get out. You just don't get it. Listen, guys. This is us in relationships with communication. Every woman will say, they just don't get it. We're in the dark, and the darkness has not understood it. And Jesus comes along and says, spiritually, that's the way it is. Scripture says that we were in darkness, but God pulled us into his glorious light. We were darkened in our understanding. We just didn't understand it. But Jesus revealed it to us because he's the light. The truth is, and this is not meant to be a condemnation or a judgment, some of your friends and families, they don't get you, they don't get why Jesus is so important to you. They just don't understand that. They'll say, well, yeah, come on, yeah, we're all Americans, that means we're all Christians, right? They don't understand why you're devoted to Jesus. They don't understand why you put yourself into spiritual disciplines to grow. They don't understand why you rearrange your priorities, your finances, the way you interact and the way you see this world, they don't understand that. the the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood, just can't comprehend. Turn that another little way, and you see another facet. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this whole thing of overcoming talks about power, because light always dispels the darkness. Darkness does not dispel light. Light dispels the darkness. You go into the darkest room you have with no lights, no windows, no cracks under the door, no light coming in. One tiny little match changes everything because that little match brings light, and that light is more powerful than all the darkness of that room. That's why we have flashlights, but we don't have flash darks. I mean, how cool would that be? Someone's coming after you. You don't want them to see you. You're gone. Can't see me. I've got a flash dark. I just shine the flash dark on me. You can't. No, it doesn't work that way. I think about it like a, a cabin out in the middle of the, the middle of Montana, out in the wilderness on a moonless night, so dark out there, so dark. And with the light on inside the cabin, you open the door and the light spills out in the dark. No one says, shut the door, you're letting the dark in. It doesn't work that way, it goes the other way, that the light always dispels the darkness. That's why when we studied Psalm 139, and the psalmist writes, you know, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. He says, but darkness is not dark to you, for the night will shine like the day, for even darkness is as light to you. And then when you begin to look at it on a spiritual level, in the grand scheme of the cosmos, in this divine battle between good and evil, God and that nasty enemy of ours, the devil, light wins. Light dispels the darkness. Turn it again and you see another facet that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not extinguished it, has not put it out, though it has tried. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to extinguish it, had all the baby boys, two years old and younger, killed, so that he might extinguish this coming king. Throughout his ministries, the Pharisees looked for ways that they might kill Jesus, and then when they finally got him on the cross and finally got him in the grave, it looked as if finally the darkness had won, that it had extinguished the light, But then there was the resurrection. Like a birthday candle that you can't blow out, Jesus says, I'm back. You tried to extinguish it, it doesn't work. And then he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And for 2,000 years, there has been repeated efforts to extinguish the truth of Jesus Christ. In horrible situations, Christians who have been persecuted around the world, in communist countries where they try to do away with the Bible, with Jesus, where Christians have been outlawed, there has been Efforts over efforts to try to extinguish the truth. And it continues on because the light cannot be extinguished by the darkness. You begin to look at this and you see the beauty of the different facets of this word. That Jesus comes and he brings life. And that life brings light. And that light, that light, some won't understand it. It can't be overcome and it will not be extinguished. See, that's where last week's sermon was supposed to stop there at the end of verse 5. So we're done with week 1 now. Now we can start week two. As Jesus just lays out this picture of the pre-existent Jesus, as John lays out the picture of this pre-existent Christ who's eternal, who's infinite, who is one with the Father, who's creator of all things, who is the source of life that brings light to our despair, our discouragement, even the death in our world, and this light cannot be overcome and will not be extinguished. It's almost like John says, okay, we just need to take a break. And that is so mind-stretching, so faith-enhancing, we just gotta stop, break time, And he shifts gears and says, let's talk about John. Verse six, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now let me just make a a little bit of a point of clarification that for some of you is like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that's very pedestrian. For some of you, this will be profound. I don't want this to be confusing. The book was written by a man named John, and this verse is talking about a man named John. So is he writing about himself, there are two Johns here that we're talking about. I don't want this to be confusing. John, who wrote the book, was one of Jesus' disciples. Peter, James, and John went fishing. Some of us grew up singing that. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John, the sons of thunder. That's John the Beloved. He's often referred to as John the Beloved, the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's writing this, this book, and he's talking about John the Baptist. Different John here. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist sent from God. Now keep in mind, in Israel's history, there have been 400 years where God has not sent a prophet. 400 years of silence, and then John comes on the scene. The thought, God has spoken again. He's brought a prophet, John the Baptist. Little side note, it's amazing how John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah, how their lives are on these parallel tracks. They're both born about the same amount of time, six months apart. Both of their births are miraculous, right? We talked about that with John the Baptist quickly last week, how his father, Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, were well beyond childbearing years, and that God did this supernatural thing where he would be born. Jesus, his mother, is Mary, and God does this supernatural thing. So they have some similarities even in that. That their lives, throughout their life, has just been set apart for God. It says that that John, even from the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit, took this Nazarite vow, was this incredible man of God. Jesus, we know, we don't know a lot about his early life, but even at the age of 12, he is wowing those who understand God's word and the Torah in the temple. They both have a ministry that talks about the kingdom of God. Both of them started about the time when they're 30 years old. Both of their ministries are very short-lived. Both of them offend some people, and Herod is involved in both of their deaths. You see there's a lot of similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. But there's a huge difference. John was sent from God, and Jesus was God. And that makes all the difference in the world. When you begin to understand that, yes, there are some similarities, and yes, John was an amazing man, but John was from God, and Jesus was God. Verse seven says this, he, John, came as a witness to testify, important word, concerning that light so that through him all men might believe, all people might believe. Here it is again. Now, here's a little rabbit trail for some of you who like this stuff, the rest of you will be back in just a minute. In the book of John, you see in verse seven, there's this talk about John the Baptist who is a witness, who is pointing to Jesus for the sole purpose, expressed purpose, that people would believe in Jesus. At the end of the Gospel, John writes in John chapter 20 and in 21, that he wrote his Gospel for the, as a witness for the sole purpose of pointing people to Jesus that they might believe. So you have John the Baptist, pre-Jesus ministry, pointing to Jesus so that people would believe in Jesus. You have John the Beloved, who's got post-Jesus ministry, writing this gospel, pointing to Jesus so that people would believe, and both of them are on the front and the back end of his book. It's like they book in the life of Jesus. They book in the book of John. I just think that's a cool little detail. That's for free. The rest of you, wake back up. Here we go, and again. All right, so, so it says this in verse eight. Verse eight, he himself was not the light He came only as a witness to the light. Jesus, uh, John recognizes, I'm not the light of the world. I'm just pointing to the light of the world. I'm bearing witness to another one that's greater. I'm like a signpost that says, here's the one you need to go see. Here's the one you need to look at. You see this even with his disciples when he says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of his disciples went and followed Jesus. That's what he wanted. Go follow Jesus. I mentioned last August that In July, my wife and I had this incredible opportunity uh, to go back to South Dakota and pick up a Harley-Davidson and ride it across the the Black Hills and then through Wyoming and Montana, Idaho, and back through Washington. And as we were going uh, in South Dakota, we decided we'd never been to Mount Rushmore, that we would ride down to Mount Rushmore. On the way there, there were a lot of signs that said Mount Rushmore. There was even one that said Mount Rushmore, State Park, all that stuff. It's all great. What if we would have just stopped at the sign and said, oh, Doreen, get out by that sign. I want to take your picture. Got the picture by Mount Rushmore's sign and then got on the motorcycle and rode the other direction. Said, so look at that sign. They spelled all the words right. It's magnificent. Evenly spaced on both sides. So artistically done. That was, let's frame that. And miss the main event. We saw the sign, but maybe we would have never seen Mount Rushmore. John the Baptist says, I'm the sign. Don't you understand? Don't take pictures of me. Don't get all excited about me. Look at the one I'm pointing to. In fact, some of you who have been reading John 1, 1 through 18 this week, you recognize that's not the end of the chapter. And maybe some of you have actually read beyond. Beyond that, when John is saying these things, the leaders of of Israel are coming and saying, so if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not Elijah well, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? He says, I'm not the prophet. And they say, well, who are you then? And then he quotes Isaiah. And he says this. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice. You ever hear that television show? Stolen from John the Baptist who borrowed it from Isaiah. (laughs) I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. That's what I am. See, John was a voice, Jesus was the word. And what's amazing is that Jesus says about John the Baptist these things. He says, of all those born of women, which is everybody, there is none greater than John the Baptist, and yet every time John speaks of himself, every time scripture speaks of himself, it just kind of downplays who he is. Just kind of like, don't make a big deal about John, it's about Jesus. It keeps pointing to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen a sticker or a t shirt that looks something like this on the back of a car, maybe on a t te- shirt or something. Ever seen this? any of you? Okay, I was gonna say, you either need to get out more or get in more red lights. The- these stickers are-, are everywhere. This was created by some guys in Hawaii. And uh, yeah, there we go. And uh, they made stickers for friends and t shirts, and then it became a business. And it's based on the words of John the Baptist. Out of John chapter 3, verse 30, when John said, He must become greater, I must become less. He greater than I. Some of you saying, That's what that means. <laughs> See, that's why you come to church. I help you with these things, I'll keep you current. He greater than I. And John the Baptist keeps saying, listen, I'm all about pointing to Jesus. I wanna point to Jesus, I wanna point to Jesus. Don't make a big deal about me, I wanna point to Jesus. All right, then it's almost like John the beloved says, okay, break over, let's get back to Jesus. John chapter one, verse nine, and, and I'll just say right up front, we don't have the time to go into some of the beauty and the depth of this verse. I wish we did, we just don't. The true light, wish we could unpack that one. That gives light to every man or every person was coming into the world. Interesting the phrasing on here. That this true light that gives light to everyone, there it again, it's that global thing, it's not just, just for a few people, was coming into the world. Like was, past tense, coming, future tense, into, present tense, into the world. And what's amazing Is it 600 years before Jesus was born? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8 talks about this utter darkness, this despair, this gloom. And then he makes this prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And this is what I so love about the prophecy of Isaiah. It's 600 years before it will be fulfilled. He's talking in the present tense. The light has dawned. It's already a done deal. It's a foregone conclusion. God says it's going to happen. You don't have to question that. He says it's like it's already taken place, that this light has dawned, that that the Savior has come to dispel the darkness, to help us through our difficult times. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. There was a new day. There was a dawning. And it's the good news of light. And this is one of those times where you begin to see the different layers, the different levels of this. Yes, there's the good news of light that it is helpful in our times of despair, in our times of discouragement, in times of doubt, even in our times of death. There's the good news of life that, that cannot be overcome, cannot be extinguished, that, that is only understood by God. And then there's this other layer behind this. Underneath it all, the good news of the light is that it's for everybody. In chapter one, verse four, he says, this is the light for all humanity, all people. Chapter one, verse nine, he says again, this is for all people. I've told you so many times my favorite verse in the entire Christmas narrative is Luke 2.10. This will be good news, of great joy for all the people. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter. This is for all the people. And this has always been God's plan. And how is it that they could have missed it? Because there was this idea that, well, we are God's people and this is exclusive to us, which excludes everybody else. That was never God's plan. God had his chosen people for the purpose of bringing the Messiah for all the people. Blessed in order to be a blessing that all nations would know. In Isaiah, we also read these words. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's good. That's important. These are my people set apart for a specific purpose. But if you stop there, you're only getting the first chapter. You're missing the big story. That's too small. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That everyone would know this. Everyone would experience this life. Everyone could have this light in their life that no one is excluded. Everyone is included. Paul would write to the church in Corinth. He would say, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. He goes back to the creation account. Let let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts. Does this creation thing within us, recreates in us, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Oh, next week, I can't wait. If you've been reading John 1, 1 through 18, you know this theme of the glory of God in Christ, to reveal us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you begin to see this, all these first nine verses, it's just, what's not to like? It's good news after good news of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, of what he brings, of who John the Baptist is, of this light, all this thing. Everything is good. But then in verse 10, it kind of goes to some bad news. gets a little sad, a little more somber. Verse 10 says, he, Jesus, the light, the logos, the word, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He made the world. He made everybody. And when he enters into that world, he's not recognized. And then it goes on and says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. On a micro level, this happened in Nazareth. And Jesus said, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown, my own family. On the next ring out, it happened with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people, because most of them did not accept him. But I don't think you can stop there. As John is writing globally, beyond, this is all of us, that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There are times when we don't recognize him. We don't acknowledge him. And this light that came into the world, as Jesus comes, there's really two responses. Rejection or reception. We either reject Christ or we receive him. And he says, and and Jesus came and, and people not only didn't recognize him, they rejected him. And some of us spent many years not recognizing him and rejecting him. And that might be even where you are to this day. And it seems like this passage takes on this, kind of this heavy feel here in verses nine, or 10 and 11. But as quickly as it turned to a, a heaviness, he turns it back around. In verse 12 he says, yet, yet, yet to all. Look at this, no one's excluded except those who exclude themselves. To all who received him, to those who what? to those who are Jewish, to those who are of the chosen nation, to those who kept the Ten Commandments, to those who kept the Ten Commandments and the other 603, to those who followed all the right rules, did all the things, had their quiet time, to those who went to VBS and CCD and Sunday School and every other initial that you can think of, to those who finished the book, graduated from the course, to those who do this, who don't do that, no, no, no. To those who believed, who put their trust, who leaned all of their dependence on him, believed in his name, he gave, very important, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not something we did. It's something he gave. It's a gift. This right. Sometimes when we think, it's my right, we have like this, this self-earned entitlement. This is my right. The word right here, the right, the authority, the, the permission, the absolute privilege of being called the children of God. He gave that to us. It's not because of something you have done. It's not because of the family you came from. It's not because of the nation you were born into. It's not because of any of your efforts. This is the grace of God that he gave us the right to be called the children of God, to be brought into his family, to be the sons and daughters of the Most High, to to sit around the table, to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a gift from God. And it's not anything that you deserved or earned by somehow what you have done to be brought into this family. Some of you know the story of how I got brought into my family. Late summer of 1962, my dad underwent a procedure to ensure that there'd be no more marvels in the household. In June of 1963, I was born. Mm-hmm. I didn't find out that detail until I was in my mid-20s. And I said, Mom, why did you guys, I mean, I've spent a quarter of a century not knowing this. Why didn't you tell me? And she said, well, we, we didn't want you to think like, we didn't want you. We don't love you. We're afraid you'd have a low self-image, low self-esteem. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? Do you know what this means? I am super sperm. (laughs) Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough. As Ron Pye says, I am a Kelly Clarkson song. Bring out the Katy Perry and watch me roar. Look at me. Super. (laughs) Super. Sometimes spiritually, we get this idea of, look at me, how I got in the family. I'm super specimen, I'm super special, I'm super spiritual. I did this, I don't do that. I graduated from this, I followed through with this. Look at all I've done. And he says, it's not what you've done. God gave us the right to become the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this. The son of God became a son of man so that the sons and daughters of men could become the sons and daughters of God Almighty. It's not what you've done, it's not what your parents did, it's not what your family line is, it's not what your nationality is. Let's take a look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says this. You know, He gave us the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Can I take you down one small little rabbit trail on this one? Verse 13. As you recall, we talked about this last week. In Luke chapter 1, there's a prediction of two births in the Christmas story one is John the Baptist, and one is Jesus the Christ. Verse 13 is their story John the Baptist. He's not born of natural descent, of natural processes. Elizabeth and and Zachariah, they are well beyond childbearing years. Naturally, humanly speaking, this isn't going to happen for them. And it's not because of a decision that one day Elizabeth just wakes up and says, I'm done being barren. That's it, I'm conceiving. And it wasn't a husband's will. Zachariah didn't say, I am the man of this household and I'm going to take things into my own and we're going to change things. Right? We're going to get pregnant. They tried all of that. John the Baptist was born of God. Jesus, in his birth, was not a natural. She's a virgin. Virgins don't get pregnant and have babies. And it wasn't a decision that she made. Mary just wakes up one day and says, You know what? I am the Virgin Mary. I'm going to have a baby. Sure wasn't Joseph's idea. He was born of God. Now here's where it gets really cool. That while that's the story of Christmas with John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ, every single time someone steps across the line of faith, receives the grace of God, receives his forgiveness, becomes a child of God, it's not because of what they've done. This is their story that the Christmas story continues. There's this durative imperfect. What God has done, he continues to do, he is doing, and he will do again. That every time someone becomes a follower after Christ, there's this miraculous birth that takes place, and it's the work of God. Let's just bring this all home and make it really, really practical for us. In two weeks, we're gonna be gathering six different times, twice in Skagit and four times in Bellingham for our Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve Eve services. We do this because tradition, the people of of faith have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's part of it. In Cornwall tradition, we've been doing this for many, many years. It's a celebration, it's a wonderful thing. Let me tell you why else we do it. Let me tell you another layer. It's because there are people that whether it's obligation or just an openness they will come to church on Christmas Eve or those kind of services when they wouldn't go any other time of year. And our prayer is that as they come, as they hear, as they celebrate, that this story would happen again and it would happen in their life. That they would experience the life of Christ and the light that he brings and that God would cast out their sin, be born in them, come into them on that day. And that's why we give you the Christmas invitations that we ask you to hand out. This isn't just to remind you. Because there are people that will say, yeah, you know, I'll do that. I mean, it's it's Christmas. Why not? And that they would come. And we recognize that we can prepare the greatest music, and our team will. We can do our best to have the wonderful commons, and it's amazing, the decorations. We can have coffee and cookies and all that, and I'll do my best to have a good sermon. But we know that it's only the work of God that's going to change a life. It's gonna change your heart. And that's why we ask you not just to invite people, but to be praying that God would again do a miraculous birth in their life. This is what every single one of us can do. We can all pray and point. Pray for people, point them to Jesus. Pray for our friends, point them to Jesus. Invite them, point them to Jesus. You know, years ago, little R2D2 came on the scene. R2D2, a memorable little phrase. Maybe we need to be P4P2. Pray for point two. Pray for people, point to Jesus. Pray for point two. See, that's what John the Baptist did. And that's what the shepherds did. And that's what God's people have done for 2,000 years, and it's our turn. To pray for and to point to so that the life and the light of Jesus can become the reality in the dark world of our family, of our friends, of our neighbors, and of our coworkers. And, and, and I just want to encourage you, maybe as you're reading this scripture every day, just to take some time and pray for those people that you're inviting. I prayed for the, the people I'm invited. I prayed for them again this morning. Skagit, last week you guys had a prayer vigil, so grateful as you just, just covered, just covered everything you're gonna do there on the 23rd in prayer here in Bellingham on Wednesday. If you have time at 6 a.m. and at noon, we're gathering for prayer, just to to take an hour to just pray that this would be a priority. Two weeks ago, Pastor Scott challenged us to to set our watch, an alarm on our, our, our phone for 1223 or 1224, just to remind us that it goes off every day, to pray for our Christmas Eve services, pray for those people who will be here. Because we, more than anything else, want them to experience the light and the life of Jesus Christ 150 years ago there was a song written go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere Jesus Christ is born that's what we're called to do